Hello and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley. Thanks for joining us. In this episode, the saddest news of all about the Uvalde massacre, a big scandal in the Southern Baptist Church, and is Donald Trump's iron grip on the Republican Party starting to slip at the same time the Justice Department issues subpoenas to the former guy's lawyers and advisors? We start with Uvalde, Texas. It's a name most Americans had never heard of until last week. Now, it takes its place along Columbine, Sandy Hook, and other sites where children have been massacred and sacrificed at the altar of the almighty gun. 21 people shot dead by a kid who bought a pair of AR-15 assault rifles legally for his 18th birthday. There have now been, of course, issues with law enforcement misinformation, a shambolic police response, a husband who died of a heart attack just after mourning his wife who was killed in that attack. All that goes on right now. And yet for me, there's an air of pessimism in the wake of Buffalo and Uvalde that I simply can't shake. It comes as I realize that the mythology surrounding the nation's gun culture will never change. That mythology deeply embedded in America's psyche, makes the right to own firearms a human right that must remain inviolate at all costs. That would even include the slaughter of children. And that is the saddest part of all. I say mythology for several reasons. First, a shallow dive into history would indicate that part of the reason for the American right to keep and bear arms had to do with organizing militia for the capture of runaway slaves. This was not all the reasons, but it was part of the reasons. And if you read the history of the amendment, you will see that particularly at the very beginning of its drafting. Southern states like Virginia were not prepared to join the still infant union without that amendment, that clause. Myth number two, has to do with the notion that even a well-organized militia could outgun the feds, tyrannical or otherwise. There's never been an example of the federal government attacking ordinary Americans with the arguable exception of the Civil War, and I do mean arguable. Fact is, many of the 400 million guns in the U.S. were procured to protect against them, whoever them is. Instances of legal gun owners taking them out are rare indeed. And keep in mind, and this is important, the Uvalde shooter Salvador Ramos was in fact a legal gun owner. The same kind of people that the NRA and the gun lobby fight so hard for. Oh, he was a legal gun owner. He went through whatever procedures they had in Texas, he went through them. And he managed to procure a pair of AR-15 assault rifles worth a collective between four and five thousand bucks. Now the kid worked in Wendy's. So how does he afford four and five thousand dollars for two assault weapons? The argument for tightening gun control laws are opposed by people who posit all manner of ridiculous solutions to the gun problem. Armed teachers, some say, without ever asking if teachers want to perform a function usually left to law enforcement. 
Others will compare gun violence in city like, cities like Chicago to the mass shootings that we've had in this country. Let us be clear. Something must be done about the proliferation of guns on the streets of the nation's cities and towns. That's also a function of law enforcement in that those guns, many illegal, must be interdicted before they get in the hands of criminals. Once thugs get them, they're often used in multiple crimes. I will never forget seeing a story in metropolitan New York while I was still working on the radio about a set of guns that were used in a robbery of a pharmaceutical, a pharmacy that is, on Long Island. And then they turned up not long afterwards as the guns used to kill a group of students, young people, in a playground in Newark, New Jersey. Same guns! That's the problem. Alas, a comprehensive approach to gun violence in the United States is beyond the grasp of politicians. I want to emphasize that. It is beyond the grasp of politicians, many of whom lack the moral backbone to stand up to the gun lobby. Leave it to Golden State Warriors basketball coach Steve Kerr in a pregame press conference to articulate what many people feel about guns, gun violence, and mass shootings in America. We cannot focus on this violence when it comes, as it has, aimed at black, Latino, and Asian communities all within two weeks. When will it end, you ask? And I really hate to say this, it won't. Ever. It's too late, I'm afraid. It won't end because we're asking politicians to legislate what our collective consciousness cannot bear to confront. America's gun culture is deep within our DNA. Why else would the company that manufactured and marketed the weapon Salvador Ramos had used, why would they feature an ad that had a young kid posing with an AR-15, the very gun that Ramos used? And afterward, they issued a typical thoughts and prayers statement. Typical, that is, because it happens all the time, especially from the enablers of gun violence. Taken together, it explains to me why the nation will lurch from one mass shooting to the next, never stopping to look inward and take the really tough steps needed to end this cycle once and for all. It makes me so, so profoundly sad. And it makes me sad and angry that the Thoughts and Prayers Brigade, particularly those on the side that will not in Congress enact any kind of legislation, any kind of legislation, to deal with the proliferation of guns. Not even sensible background checks. There is no excuse, none, for people who won't do that. And even background checks, even deep dive background checks, are not gonna solve the problem. Not until we confront, once and for all, our love affair with guns. Up next, the scandal that's rocked the Southern Baptist Convention as leaders reveal a database of alleged church-related sexual abuse. Is there nowhere safe? This is The Intersection.
You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. I'd like to know what you think. Leave a comment on my Facebook page or you can email me at mark at markreillymedia.com. Welcome back to The Intersection. Sexual abuse under the cloak of religion is nothing new. Goes back probably to the origins of religion. The two decade long saga of such abuse within the Catholic Church should make that quite plain. And that's just 20 years ago. Now it's the turn of the Southern Baptist Convention. Little bit of history is in order here. The SBC is a collection of churches that broke away from the larger Baptist church in 1845 over, among other things, the issue of slavery. The SBC, of course, supported it. Fast forward to the early 21st century, and church leaders were made aware of allegations of sexual misconduct on the part of pastors, denominational workers, ministerial workers, and volunteers. All of the above. Keep in mind that the Southern Baptist Convention is the largest Baptist denomination in the world, the largest Protestant denomination in the U.S., and the second largest Christian denomination also in the U.S. Given its size and scope, one would think it would move quickly to deal with sexual misconduct allegations in its ranks. However, much like the Catholics, they chose to cover it up, and in some cases even vilify those who came forward. The idea of creating a database of church offenders was first put forward by an abuse survivor, Krista Brown, to ensure that offenders would not be able to bounce from church to church. That was in 2007. Now, 15 years later, that database list has been made public. The SBC says it's different from the Catholic Church because its churches are independent of one another. Several experts on the subject, however, say that is no defense at all. One thing puzzles me. Aside from the comparatively small number of church people who sexually exploit both women and men, and I say that because these are denominations with huge numbers of people, and it's a relatively small cohort of that number of people that engage in sexual misconduct. I want to make that very clear because what I'm saying is not, repeat, not a condemnation of organized religion, religion of any sort. Although there are religions on the globe that I have very big problems with. But this is not about saying that all members of the Southern Baptist Convention are potential sex offenders. That's not what I'm saying. But there are numbers of people, church people, who sexually exploit women and men. And one has to ask, what type of Christianity allows for the sort of denial and cover-ups we've seen on the part of both Catholics and Southern Baptists? That's the rub. All right, You'll have bad people in all kinds of situations, including religion. But when... Religious, religious leadership, that is, begins the process of covering up what's going on. That's the rub. That's the problem. 
Christian, Christian doctrine, it seems to me, would dictate transparency and openness on these matters, at least the Christianity that I know of. It's not about retribution, but rather maintenance of integrity. Maybe the Southern Baptist Convention's actions in making their database public is a step in that direction. But before we give them too much credit, consider this. The victims of sexual predation rarely bounce back in a few days, a few weeks, a few months, or even a few years. Some of these folks will never be made whole. Their view of sexuality, as well as religion, are likely changed and not for the better. Given the Catholic Church has had to pay out billions in compensation to the victims of sexual abuse in their churches, one wonders if money will be paid to SBC survivors. It's obviously early to figure that one out, real early I guess, but financial compensation is by some measure the easy way out. A long hard look inward at what drove church leaders to cover up this scandal in the first place would certainly be in order. No guarantee that's going to happen, however. In our next and final segment, a look at last week for Donald Trump. Not his best? Mm, could be. This is The Intersection. Wherever you are, stay tuned to The Intersection with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. It wasn't the best of times for Donald Trump the past couple of weeks. First of all, several of his endorsed candidates lost their primary races in Georgia and in North Carolina. They didn't just lose, they lost big. The Georgia gubernatorial race was of some significance. Brian Kemp, the incumbent, has been savaged by Trump for the better part of the last two years. His sin? Failure to overturn Joe Biden's victory in the Peach State. Combine that with Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger's big win and the primary loss of Trump's mini-me, Madison Cawthorn, and you have a bad night for the kingmaker. It would seem the big takeaway is that Republican voters are sick and tired of rerunning the 2020 election. If the former guy is thinking about running in two years, and I'm not sure he will, he's going to have to lose the whole election with stolen shtick. Yet Trump can never, ever concede defeat. He'll try to turn last week's results into a win as well. Even though a GOP candidate for office would generally love to have a Trump endorsement, it looks as though the bloom is off the rose. And I kind of thought this was going to happen. People, and I'm talking about people who share Trump's beliefs about a whole bunch of stuff. Culture wars, immigration, this, that, and the other. Those folks don't want to sit, and at least most of them, sit and ruminate all day about how the election two years ago was stolen from him. Let's see how those he did endorse, by the way, do in the midterms, coming up, of course, in November. Another cloud on the horizon for Trump is the sprawling Justice Department probe into the January 6th insurrection. They've issued a bunch of subpoenas 
regarding efforts to install bogus electors in states where he lost the popular vote. While the subpoenas don't touch him personally, seeking records from advisors like Rudy Giuliani, Bernard Kerrick, and John Eastman seem to be aimed at establishing whether laws were broken in the effort to keep Trump in office. Now, it's interesting, Bernie Kerrick, who at one time was Trump's driver and later became police commissioner in New York City, says he has no problem complying with a subpoena, but he thinks this is a political issue and not a criminal one. Well, we'll see about that. Now, there are some reports that say large numbers of subpoenas could in fact be issued. That would be a wide net and would be a pretty fair number of people for Trump to throw under just one bus. Don't bank on the possibility he won't and won't try if things get warm. He's got other subpoena worries as well. The Fulton County, Georgia DA, Fannie Willis, is also looking into whether Trump and or his minions violated Georgia law in their efforts to overturn that state's results. Her office has had to endure threats to the point where she had staff fitted with body armor. And all this, folks, because one man refused and continues to refuse to accept the results of a free and fair election. I know his people will shout from the rooftops that the 2020 balloting was anything but free and fair. They just haven't been able to prove it in any way, shape, or form. And then there's New York, where a court last week threw out an effort to halt an investigation into alleged real estate shenanigans by Trump and his people. This one's been going on for three years, with New York State Attorney General Letitia James doing a deep dive into whether the Trump organization misled tax authorities and banks about the valuation of his real estate assets. This is one situation that a lot of people in New York City and New York State have been suspected or have been suspicious of, suspicious about how Trump does his business. Now, I'm not going to get into the minutiae of this, but let's just say the valuations he put on his tax forms were not always the valuations, apparently, allegedly, that he put when it was time for him to go to banks to get money. And by the way, a lot of banks won't do business with him anymore. His lawyers have argued that James is simply fishing to further her own political career. A U.S. District Court judge disagreed and threw out the lawsuit seeking to end the probe. To top it off, an intermediate state appeals court also ruled last week that Trump and his two eldest children, Donald Jr. and Ivanka, will have to testify under oath as part of that investigation. Of course, Trump will try his best to keep Letitia James's at bay, vowing to appeal the federal ruling. My guess is, just like his failed court attempts to prove voter fraud, this will go nowhere as well. It could be that the walls are starting to close in on the 45th president. It couldn't happen to a more deserving guy. Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley, and music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.